Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim.
Lord, I need you. Have you ever had something happen where, like, you had something and you didn't really know what type of blessing it was, and then it was like the other day I was at a friend of mine's house and I'm trying to play video games with his little kid, who's probably five years old or something, and I'm all excited. I'm like, "Well, I could do it. I figured it out. I'm doing it with one hand." And then they changed the settings and took the, the easy mode off. <laughs> I guess I can't do it. <laughs> it was like two seconds later, I'm dead. You know, we're never going to have that experience with Jesus. That's one thing that we're never, ever, ever going to be able to say about God. Right? Because what, did, what does God say? He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So there'll never be a time where his grace, his mercy, his presence is taken away from us, and we'll have to experience that saying, wow, I didn't realize how much I needed you, God. <laughs> because he's always going to be with us. And I find that really, really encouraging. So thank you, Alicia. That was awesome. Wasn't that great? Like, you guys need to pressure her to keep coming back. We need more of that. <laughs> Anyways, tonight's uh, going to be a little different. Uh, instead of doing our, our groups first, we're just going to start out uh, with the message, and then uh, we'll do the uh, little discussion time at the end. So um, we're going to do that. But first, before I get into that, one thing I wanted to share with you guys, I mentioned last week about, um, uh, as a ministry, putting on an event for the church at Friendsgiving. Um, and I said, I think I said November 12th. Um, it had to be moved. There was a conflict scheduling with the church. So it's actually going to be Saturday, November 19th. It'll be a morning brunch. And we'll be able to serve the whole body and uh, put on uh, this Friendsgiving. I think it's going to be a great time. I think it'll be great for us to be able to serve together and, and, and grow as a body in that capacity. So be praying about that. Mark, November 19th, Saturday morning. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, I'm excited to be able to do that. Also, if any of you guys um, are in children's or have been fingerprinted to do work with kids and you're able to help with that, let me know. I need to kind of put something together to do with the kids during that time. If you're not fingerprinted and you want to possibly work with kids that day, talk to me. We could get you fingerprinted and being able to do that. Um, but, yeah, so we have that coming up. Um yeah, so, yeah, feels good to be here. You guys look great, my little flock. Send out my little flock. Um, so, yeah. anyways, let's uh, get into it. Let's pray. Father, uh, we need you. <laughs> we need you more now than ever, Lord. And I, uh, I just pray that, that you would speak through me. You would help us to to hear and receive your word, Lord, and, and ultimately to leave here uh, with just a clear vision of you, uh, just in awe of who you are and in a heart that's just overflowed with your love and mercy and, and grace and, and just apt, ready to, to worship you and represent you to this world that doesn't know you, Lord. Tonight we're going to talk about repentance, and I thank you that you've granted each one of us repentance, Lord, that I pray that we leave here with this urgency to make repentance the message that we share with everybody. Lord. So I pray that you would work, that you would stir us up, 
that you would start this new work in us, Lord. Philippians 1.6 says that it's you who's uh, working both to will and to do for your good pleasure. So if anything that we're going to do for the kingdom starts with you putting that desire in our heart, you changing our will, you working through us. And so we open our hearts, we give you permission to, to start working in that way. Lord, I pray right now you would minister to us. I pray that you would give us each a, a vulnerability, Lord, to be able to take off our shoes and allow you to watch our feet, to be able to expose our hurt, expose our need, expose our sin, because you say that, that you give grace to the humble and you're opposed to the proud. So, so I pray we'd have that humility and that, that acceptance to be able to be ministered to by you, Lord. But we give you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're, again, going through the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith is this confession that was written uh, for the Church of England. And, and what it was, it gave the essential doctrines and practices for the church. They got together and said, hey, what does one have to believe? What does a church have to do to be Orthodox, to be Christian? And they came up with these articles of this confession saying, this is what Orthodox Christianity looks like, these doctrines, these practices. And so we're using that as our guide, going article by article here and, and describing what does the Bible say about these things? What does Calvary Chapel believe about these things? And the idea is that by the time we're done with this series, We'll have gone through all the major doctrines, all the major practices for the church, and hopefully we'll be equipped and edified, and we'll kind of see it in a different light than what we get it in a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study on Sunday morning. But last week we talked about saving faith. Right? We're, we're in the section called uh, Applied Redemption. Right? We, I've talked about how Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, and the redemption was accomplished. He said, it is finished. Everything needed for redemption was done. It was paid for. It was, it was finished. But it still needs to be applied to people in real points, in real time, in history, and God's doing that now. Sometime in the last 20, 30 years, come down, this Holy Spirit, at some point in time, has applied redemption to each one of our lives. Now he wants to use each one of us as vessels to go out and preach the gospel, preach repentance, and have that same thing applied to other people's lives through us. So last week we talked about saving faith, and that's one aspect of this redemption. And I would made, I mentioned that repentance is uh, kind of uh, an aspect of saving faith. Repentance isn't saving faith, that they're not the same thing, but repentance and saving faith go together. Uh, the, uh, repentance is another, the other side of saving faith. If it was a coin, one head of the coin would be repentance, and the other side of the coin would be saving faith. You can't have one without the other. And the idea is, is this. If I'm going to look at the TV, if I'm going to turn to the TV, I need to turn my back to you guys. Uh, and just like that, if I'm going to turn to God, I need to turn my back to sin and to the world. So to express faith in God, I need to repent from sin and for the, from the world. So it's two sides of the same coin. In Isaiah 55, the prophet is really giving a, a salvation call. He's giving a gospel message. He's giving a call to salvation to the nation of Israel. And listen to what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord 
that we may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, we got both parts there, right? He's saying, seek the Lord. He's saying, uh, turn away from your unrighteous ways, from your unrighteous thoughts, and then return to the Lord. You can't return to the Lord without turning away from your unrighteousness. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives us kind of a definition of repentance. He doesn't use the word repentance, but the idea of repentance is certainly here nonetheless. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned from God, or turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us all from the wrath to come. So we turned from idols to the living God. And so there's a positive and a negative aspect here of repentance. Due to the fact that repentance and faith are so intrinsically tied together, some authors I've been reading from the Westminster Confession, uh, they combine the two. They make the two kind of one chapter or one teaching. And I was tempted to do the same thing here. However, there's so much confusion about what repentance is today. Uh, this doctrine of repentance is so under attack today. But uh, I, I figured it would be do us well to look at it independently. Repentance is a doctrine, like I said, that's been under attack this last century, especially in the West. There's this new idea that repentance isn't necessary for salvation, but it's a part of discipleship. Meaning that you could just say, oh, I, I need Jesus, I accept him as my Savior, and I'm saved. You don't need to repent. Repentance only comes into play when we grow in discipleship. But that, that sounds nice, that sounds fancy, but it's hard to find anything in the Bible that actually supports that. The Bible doesn't make this distinction. In Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, the passage Pastor Bob mentioned on Sunday says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the ages. You see that Jesus says, go forward and make disciples. He doesn't say, go forward and make converts, and then later on, disciple them and teach them about repentance so they could grow in discipleship. No, he says, make disciples. That's the first step. The first step is making disciples. It's discipleship, and repentance is necessary for discipleship. So therefore, it's necessary for salvation as well. But what is repentance? How do we define repentance? The Luxem Theological Wordbook has this. Repentance is an act of acknowledging past wrongdoing, expressing regret or contrition, and committing to right behavior and obedience to God. It is a transformative process that involves turning away from sin or transgression and turning back to God. Perhaps it might be helpful for us to, to get a full grasp of this is to look at the way that this word repentance is used throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's really two words that are used to express this idea of repentance. The first one is this Hebrew word, naham. And this word can have different meanings 
but it conveys the idea of feeling sorrow or remorse. It's the, the contrition side of repentance. Nahum is often used uh, in conjunction with phrases like they put on sackcloth and ashes, or they, they rent their garments. The other word is this word, suh, and this word is used to express the idea of turning or returning. Regarding repentance, it means to uh, turn away from the wrong path and return to the right path of following God. This is a word that's often used throughout the prophets. The prophets are God's covenant attorneys. They're, they're coming on the scene, and they're, they're, they're sent by God, commissioned by God to go and tell Israel, Look, you're breaking God's commandments. You, you, you're, you're, you're blowing it. You're guilty before God. And call them to return, to turn, to make a change in their behavior. They're calling them to repentance. For instance, in Hosea 3.5, it says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in the fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter day. Here's one I'm sure we all know. Second Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. If I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and here it is, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So the idea of repentance in the, New, in the Old Testament it's twofold. One of it is, is sorrow, it's, it's mourning, it's contrition, it's, it's, it's feeling really bad about what you've done. And then there's also a, a, a turning, a, a returning to the right path. The word that the New Testament most uses for repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It comes from the, the prefix meta, which is, is, is really a preposition that means after. And then noia means to understand. Therefore, it literally means an afterthought or the change of mind, a change of mind. Now, remember when John the Baptist started a ministry and, uh, and he was preaching repentance to a Jewish audience? Jesus was too. That audience would have understood the Old Testament concepts that I just mentioned. When they heard metanoia, when they heard that you need to repent, both Old Testament concepts of feeling sorrow and changing direction would have came to their mind. They would have understood that that was necessary for repentance. You know, Jesus gave a, a, a parable showing the, the, the uh, Pharisees what repentance really looked like. He, he was really telling this parable to, to rebuke the Pharisees and tell them that, you know, the sinners are going to get into heaven before them because the sinners will repent. And, and the Pharisees, well, they're Pharisees. They don't think they need repentance, so they repent. But in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32, Jesus says this. He says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first son and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. The man came to a second son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They answered and said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you did not believe in him. 
But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe in him. And you, saying this, did not even feel remorse afterward, so as to believe in him. John the Baptist, his message was repentance. We talked about that in Mark 1, verses 1 through 4, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the way the gospel starts. It starts with repentance. And John the Baptist was coming to Jews who, at the time, they believed that they were already right with God. They, they, they believed that, hey, they're God's people. They're doing the right thing. You know, they're, they're, they're in the, the know, you know. They're good to go. And they're telling, John the Baptist is telling them, no, you're not. You need to repent. <laughs> you know, don't think because Abraham's your father that, that, that you're dead, right? The, the axe is, is right at the tree. It's ready to chop you down, he said. He said that they needed to get off the crooked road and onto the straight path. They needed to straighten their paths. They needed to turn. They needed to get on the right road. So John the Baptist's message was repent. And Jesus' message was repent. Actually, from the very start of his ministry all the way until the very end, right before he ascended, he was preaching repentance. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And then immediately, chapter 4, he's led by the Spirit of God out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days. Remember, the devil comes to him, and he's, he's tempting him, and three times, Jesus, he answers with the word of God. He re- rebukes the, the devil's temptation, right? And he shows how we're supposed to fight these temptations, how we're ha- supposed to have victory over the devil, and it's through the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And the devil leaves and, and waits for an opportune time to attack him again, the Bible says. But then at the very beginning of chapter 4, Jesus returns into Galilee, and Matthew tells us, he says this. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people were sitting in darkness, and they saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was Jesus' very first sermon. His very first message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if we parse that message out, that, 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 that word, repent, in the Greek, it, it's going to tell us a lot. If we parse it out, it's in the present active indicative. Right? You guys know exactly what that is, right? Well, the present tense in Greek, it's a little different than the present tense in English. The present tense in English is, is something that's, that's happening right now. Well, in the Greek, it's the same thing, but it carries the idea that it's, it's happening now, but it's going to continue to happen indefinitely. So this tells us that, that, that repentance is something that, that we need to do now, but, but it, it, if we truly repent, we're going to continue to have a, a heart and an attitude of repentance. It's a continual action. We'll live a life of repentance. 
Jesus is looking for a repentance that continues throughout life into the future. And the heart change that he gives us produces a heart that is repentant. You know, the first time we, we repent, we're, we're saved, but that salvation is evidenced by the fact that we continually repent. One of my favorite Christian quotes is by Martin Luther, the, the reformer. Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. And he's so true when he says that. So, so it's in the present tense. Secondly, it's, it's, a, it's active. This means it's something that, that we do. It's not something that happens to us. It's something that, that we need to continually do. It's something that we need to be aware of, something that we need to remind ourselves of, something that we need to, to do each and every day. We need to repent. It's not something that happens to us. It's not We're not passive in this repentance. It's something that we are a part of. And third, it's an imperative. This means it's a command. Jesus isn't suggesting that people repent. No, he's commanding every man everywhere to repent. Therefore, to not repent is actually to be disobedient. And therefore, incurs judgment. Listen to what it says in John 3.36. It says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Present tense, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. If we don't obey Jesus' command to repent and believe, we're still under the wrath of God. We aren't saved, he's saying. You see, and Jesus says that because to, to, to repent is a command. To believe is a command. So, so when we don't repent, when we don't believe, we're being disobedient. We're not obeying. And we're still under the wrath of God. So Jesus begins his ministry preaching repentance. It was literally his first sermon, his first message. You know what Jesus' last message before ascending into heaven, according to the Gospel of Luke is? Is repentance. In Luke 24, verses 45 through 49. Now here, Jesus, he's already been crucified. He's already risen. He's appeared to the disciples. He's met the two on the road to Emmaus. He's revealed himself to the eleven. Well, first to the ten, and then Thomas also. All of that. And then, right before he ascends, he says this. In Luke 24, verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnessing these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? I preached repentance. I'm still preaching repentance. Now you're going to be the one preaching repentance. And I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit that's going to cause you to preach repentance. And when we're spirit-filled, we're going to model repentance. We're going to preach repentance. We're going to be telling people about repentance. And so it was John the Baptist's message. It was Jesus' message. But it's also the disciples' message as well. In Acts 2, verse, uh, in Acts 2, remember that Pentecost, Peter's preaching and, uh, and, and going through the, the history of salvation for Israel, you know, going through the way that God saved them, and, but then showing them how they crucified their Messiah, how they blew it, 
And then it says this, so now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. His message is you need to repent, to be baptized. In Acts 26, Paul, he's on trial before King Agrippa. And he says this. He says in verses 19 and 20, So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also of Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So it was John's message, it was Jesus' message, it was Peter's message, and it was Paul's message as well. And now it's our message. Now I know that repentance isn't necessarily a, a popular message or to share today. I, I, I know that people don't like to hear that. You need to repent. However, we are not called to be popular. We're called to be holy. And to be holy means to be holy his. And if we're holy his, we're going to preach what he preached. We're going to preach repentance. Luke 13.5 says, I tell you, this is Jesus saying this, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So if we're going to be what Pastor Bob called us to be on Sunday, we need to understand and preach repentance. Now we're going to look at some of the finer details of repentance and start filling in our outline. So for the first filling, I fill in the word must. Repentance is a must for absolutely everyone. In Acts 17, Paul, he's on Mars Hill in the Areopagus, and, and he's preaching. And, and he says this in verse 29. He says, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul saying all men everywhere need to repent. Why do all men everywhere need to repent? Isaiah 53, 5 says, For all we like sheep have gone astray. We're all lost. And the only way we're going to be saved is through repentance. Uh, John, John MacArthur talks about this time where... Uh, he, he uh, right after Ukraine got delivered from the Soviet Union and stopped being communist, he was going over and he was doing a lot of ministry in Ukraine. And he talks about this time that, that he first went there after that. He's, he's at this church and there's all kinds of people there to see him, people standing room only. And, and he says he, he preached long. He ended up preaching for like, I think like three hours he was. And uh, I guess that I was there. Um, and and, and and at the end of that, the, the pastor of this, this church comes up, and he says, uh, <laughs> now we're going to have a time for repentance. And John's like, what are you talking about? He's thinking, 
And then the pastor says, you know, if anybody wants to repent, come up to the front. And, and John says people came up and just kept coming. And as they would come up, the pastor would hand them a microphone and they would tell these short testimonies about uh, the way that they uh, was either the way that they've repented or the sin that they're in and what they need to repent of and, and, and how God is calling them to repentance. And John says that he, he started to realize that that's just kind of how they do altar calls on that side of the world. That, that it's so obvious when you read the Bible that you need to repent that they just associated repentance with salvation. And, and to them hearing, hey, do you want to repent? Do you want to come forward and repent? Is like us hearing, hey, do you want to receive Jesus? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to know that you're going to heaven? And that's the way a lot of people outside of the, the western part of the world read their Bible and understand repentance. There's, there's no way that we could have salvation apart from repentance. They're so tied together. And so anyone who wants to be saved must repent. Number two, repentance is an evangelistic grace that is a gift from God. Fill in grace from God. I think I gave you guys God, right? So fill in the word grace. Forgot to delete the word God there in your outline. Um, we need to understand where true repentance comes from. It comes from God. It comes from above. You know, the, the, the command to, to repent and believe is impossible apart from the, the grace of God. It really is. In the Gospels, we have this account of this rich young ruler. And remember, he comes, and obviously he believes in Jesus. He wants to follow him. And so he comes to Jesus, and he's like, hey, hey I want to follow you. What, what do I need to do? And, and Jesus tells him, hey, you know, you need to go sell all you have and give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. But what makes this story so radical is the way that the Jews would have understood this, the Jewish way of thinking. Remember the book of Deuteronomy? It's literally the second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. Well, in that, Moses is giving one last sermon to the children of Israel before they cross into the promised land. And in this sermon, he's reciting the salvation history of Israel. He's reminding them of some of the laws that God has given them. He's trying to prepare them and get them ready so that they can go in and enjoy the inheritance that the Lord's giving them. Well, in part of that, in chapters 28 and 29, remember they go up on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and, and they announce the, the blessings and the curses for obeying or disobeying the law of God. And the idea was this. If, if we obey, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed. Things are going to be hard for you. And so that's the Jewish mindset. And so anybody that was rich or had authority or had these, these positions to a Jewish mind, they think, wow, this must be a really righteous person. They must have really obeyed because that's how they would have received this. And so to the mind of the disciples, it was, wow. <laughs> Here, let me just read it to you. I think you guys will get a better picture of it as I read it. In Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. And he said, 
said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He must have been shocked. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So even this rich young ruler who they looked at and thought, Hey, man, this guy must be blessed because he kept the law and all that. He needed genuine repentance. But he was unwilling to let go of his covetousness, so he went away sad. You see, the only way that we're going to have true repentance is if it's by the grace of God. You know, the difficulty some have in entering the doorway to the kingdom of God is like an experience of a boy who sticks his hand into a vase and then gets it stuck. And his parents are doing everything to try to get his hand out of this vase. They're, they're putting butter around it. They're using oil, everything, and trying to pull his hand out, and, and they just can't get it out. And they're about to just break the vase, smash it with a hammer so that they could free the son's hand. And the son says, hey, do you want me to let go of this pain I have in my hand? And when he opens his fist, his hand's able to come right out. But so often we're not able to be freed from the bondage of sin because we're not willing to let go of it. We're not willing to give it up. Like this little boy who had that penny wrapped in his fingers. Matthew 5.20 says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We need a perfect righteousness. We need Jesus' imputed righteousness. And that can only come from above. In Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches to Cornelius and his family, and they're saved. In Acts 11, Peter then is describing this experience, how God has visited the Gentiles, how God's Spirit's working in the Gentiles, how they are having the same experience that the disciples had back in Acts chapter 2. And he says this, starting in verse 17, he says, Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God granted it to them. God gifted it to them. The repentance that leads to life. Second Timothy 2, 24 and 25. Paul writes to Timothy, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. See, God has to grant true repentance. So what's our part in the kingdom? 
I remember it's a present active imperative. It's something that, that we have to do. But I don't really know. I can't really split hairs. The Bible says clearly that if there's true repentance, it comes from God. But the Bible also commands me and everyone to repent. So we repent. We do everything we can to denounce our sin and to go in the right direction. And if we see true repentance, if we start going down that road and seeing repentance in our life, we could be assured that God is granting us that grace of repentance, that it's God working in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Our next point, repentance is a necessary part of our gospel message. We put in necessary. You know, Jesus preached repentance. We're called to be like Jesus. Therefore, we need to preach repentance. Remember in Acts 13, the, the disciples there in Antioch are, are first called Christians. It's the first time the word Christian came up. And you remember what it means? Why they called them Christians? It was, it was originally used as a derogatory name. Right? It, it, it was the outsiders calling them Christians. They went by followers of the way. Not just, it was the, the followers of the way. It was what they taught of themselves. But the outsiders, they called them Christians because it was like many Christ's was mocking them. You little mini-Jesus here was the idea. Because they were acting so much like Jesus. They saw so much of Jesus in them that they called them Christians. Well, if we're going to be like Jesus and people are going to see Jesus in us, then we're going to call people to repentance as well. I know this isn't a fun message, like I said. I know people don't want to be told to repent. It's kind of like a bad word in our culture. <laughs> repent. Well, our culture might think repentance is a bad word. We just saw that repentance is a gift from God. And if we truly, people truly, if people truly understood repentance, they would see it as a joyous word too. They would see it as a word of liberation, as it is. What if I came to you and I said, "Hey, Alicia, give me a hundred dollars. Right now, give me a hundred bucks." You probably wouldn't like that message, would you? But what if I told you this? Give me $100, and in two weeks, it's going to be worth $10,000. That's going to be your return on investment. You'd be like, hey, could I give you more than $100? Can I invest more? And so often people are like that with repentance because they don't understand the return on investment. You're telling them to give up their sin, and, and people don't like to give things up. But they don't see what they're going to get in return. But if we're modeling repentance and we're showing people that the fruit of repentance and what a repentant life looks like and, and how blessing, how much how blessed they're going to be to repent, they're going to want to give up more and more of their sin because they're going to see that they're going to get more and more in return from the Lord for their repentance. You know, if a doctor knows someone has a disease like cancer but doesn't tell the person because he doesn't want to hurt their feelings or offend them, that doctor would be a quack doctor and should be fired if not prosecuted, right? Well, this world has a sin disease, and this disease brings eternal death. And we have the only known cure, repentance. Right? God help us if we don't tell anybody about it. You know Noah's message? from the steps going up to the ark is not something good's going to happen to you. Amos, is, Amos was not confronted by the high priest of Israel for proclaiming, confession is a possession. 
and Jeremiah was not put in the pit for preaching, I'm okay, you're okay. Daniel was not thrown in the lion's den for telling people uh, positive, positive thinking were more mountains. John the Baptist was not forced to preach in the wilderness and eventually beheaded because he preached, well, God loves you. The two prophets in the tribulation will not be killed for preaching. Uh, God's in heaven and I was right with the world. Instead, what the message of all these men of God was, repent, repent. Yeah, the world didn't like it. Yeah, that message brought negative consequences to their life. But you know what? It honored God. They were faithful to God. When people did repent, there was parties in heaven. And Jesus says there's a greater party in heaven when one sinner repents than when there's 99 people who don't need repentance. Well, that's only because there's no such thing as 99 people who don't need to repent. But God throws a party when people repent. Heaven has a totally different perspective of repentance than the earth does. And what are we going to live for? Are we going to live for the earth? Or are we going to live for heaven? And if we're truly going to live for heaven, we're going to see repentance as the gift it is. So repentance is a negative, or I'm sorry, is a necessary part of our gospel message. Next, we need to recognize the difference between repentance and remorse. How do we know if somebody is truly repentant? If I go down to the, the Orange County Jail here, there's going to be a lot of folks that are really sorry about what they've done. They're going to be really grieved about their, where they're at, you know, their, their circumstances. But is that true repentance? Are, are they really repenting? 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 7, verses 8 through 11 is kind of helpful here. This is a great passage. Paul writes, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Paul had written to them in kind of a, a stern letter, rebuking them in a lot of ways in 1 Corinthians. And, and, and now he's writing them again. And he's saying, I didn't regret the, the sternness of my letter and how it caused you sorrow. Though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss of anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So here Paul's talking about two different types of sorrow. He talks about a sorrow that's the will of God and that leads or produces repentance without regret. What does this mean? What is repentance without regret? What is a sorrow without regret? A sorrow that, uh, that doesn't turn back. A, a, a sorrow that doesn't uh, stop being sorrow. A sorrow that mourns over sin to the point that you don't desire to go back to that same sin. But he also speaks of a worldly sorrow. And this sorrow produces death. This sorrow is a sorrow that you got caught. It's a sorrow that you're suffering negative consequences because of your sin. It's a sorrow that doesn't realize that it's offended God, that it's sinned against God. 
Listen to what David writes after he's confronted with his sin with Bathsheba by the prophet Nathan. Remember David? He had, uh, you know, the time that all the kings go out to battle, he's like, hey, you know what? I don't need to go. I've got generals. I've got an army. I'm going to stay back here in my castle, in my palace. I'm just going to hang out. And, and so he's doing that, and, and he's tempted. He sees Bathsheba. And now I think she's kind of tempting him, right? She's on her rooftop bathing and that, and he, she's trying to get his attention. But anyways, they, they hook up, and he commits adultery, and she gets pregnant. And then to try to cover that up, he goes and basically has her husband murdered and then takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And for a year, no one said anything, nothing happened. He just went about life. I think he thought he got away with it. If you read Psalm 32, you'll say he's really being beaten up inside. But then this prophet, Nathan, comes to him. And he tells this story. He's like, hey, there's this, this really rich guy, and he has all kinds of animals. And his neighbor's really poor. He's got this one little ewe lamb, and he loved that lamb. It was like a, like a child thing. He'd sleep with him and all of that. And, and this friend came and, and wanted to this guy's house, this rich guy's house. And he wanted to have a feast, but instead of killing one of his own lambs, one of his own sheep, he goes and kills the neighbor's little ewe lamb and uses that. And David's like, the man should die. The man needs to die. And Nathan says, you're, you're, you're the man. That's you, David. And, he, and he's convicted of his sin. And he writes Psalm 51, showing his, his repentance from that. I'm sure if you, after reading Psalm 51, if you ask David if repentance is a bad word, he's going to say, no. If you ask him if he was glad that Nathan came and confronted him over sin, He's going to say yes. I commend you guys to, to read Psalm 51 and, and, and look at what repentance is in it. I wish we had the time to do it, but we don't. But in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5, David writes this, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight, so that you're justified in your speech and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Against you and you only have I sinned. That's interesting, because David had sinned against Bathsheba, who led her into adultery. He had sinned against Uriah, him murdered by proxy. He'd sinned against the whole nation of Israel. He's the king, and as the king goes, the country goes, God says. So the king was called to live a holy life, a pure life, was to walk by the word of God. And deviating that was sinning against his duty as being the king to the, to the people. So he'd sinned against the whole nation. But that's not what bothered David. See, because above that, first and foremost, David realized that he sinned against God. So against you, and you only have I sinned. And compared to the affront that David's sin was to God, all the other people seemed small. That seemed like nothing compared to what he had done against God. You see, repentance realizes that God has been most offended and returns the sinner to God. Remorse doesn't take God into account. Remorse is just sorry that there's suffering that affects you, the consequences of your sin. 
repentance realizes they violated God, they've offended God, they've hurt God, they're defiled before God. You know, the night that Jesus was, the last night Jesus was on earth, two of his disciples betrayed him. Two of his disciples denied him. Judas sold him, sold him to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious rulers, for 30 pieces of silver. Betrayed Jesus. But then Peter just outright denies Jesus out in the open. I, I, I don't even know the guy, he says. And Judas went and hung himself. Right? That's a sorrow that leads to death. But Peter returned to Christ. That's godly sorrow. That's repentance. Repentance lasts. Remorse does not. You know, a Sunday school teacher once asked a class what was meant by the word repentance. This little boy put up his hand. I'm sure his name was Johnny. And he said, it is being sorrow for your sin. A little girl also raised her hand and says, please, Johnny, it is being sorry enough to quit. That's what real repentance is, being sorry enough to quit our sins. Repentance includes recognition of sin, repudiation of sin, and a redirection of life. So following recognition, repudiation, and redirection. You know, true repentance involves all of our faculties. It involves our mind, it involves our emotions, and it involves our will. Repentance, metanoia, is literally a change of mind. It's an acknowledgement that we're in sin. Uh, that, that's part of it. But repentance also includes our emotions. You see, we're, we're, we're broken from our sin. We're undone because of our sin. We realize we need healing because of our sin. And that was the case of Isaiah. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The seraphim, the burning ones, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they cried out to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him that called out. While the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, there's an undoing when we are confronted with our sin, and we have true repentance. There's a brokenness, and Isaiah experienced that. But thirdly, there's a change in the will. You see, we understand that our sin offends God, so we decide not to do it anymore. There's a change in our will. We're saying, hey, I, I used to like to do that. I may still like to do that, but I know it offends God, and so I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do what God wants me to do, because I want to honor God. I'm going to add this at number three. It, 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 it's always met by God's grace. It, it, it always is. If God's calling you to repent of something or to give something up, he's going to give you more than enough grace to be able to do it. 
as you take the steps to give that up and to walk in the right path, you're going to be met with grace after grace after grace. And the further down you're going to get down that path, you're going to realize God's been gracious to me. God's been working this whole time. See, right after Isaiah was undone, he recognized his sin. What happened? One of the seraphs, one of the angels flew down and they took a coal from the altar and they came and applied it to his lips and purged his lips and cleaned his lips and gave him new lips. And God has the same grace for you. I guarantee it. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's famous for saying, there's no such thing as cheap grace. Grace isn't going to come without repentance. It's just not. There's no easy believism. If we're going to exhibit true repentance, it's going to take all of our faculties. It's going to take all that we have. We're going to have to realize we're sinners. We're going to have to be reading God's word because it's God's word that tells us that we're sinners. So it gives us knowledge of sin. And then we're going to have to be broken over it. And then we're going to have to commit to not do it again. But I guarantee you, it's going to be met by grace. Our next point, there's no sin that can't be repented of. Well, no, it can't. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 16, Paul writes this. He's kind of giving a little bit of his testimony here. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving a full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience and as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul had some pretty serious sins here. He was a blasphemer. And a blasphemer in the Old Testament would be punished by death, by stoning. He was a persecutor of the church. Right? I mean, that's like, think ISIS today. And he hated Jesus and his followers. He was a hater of God. Yet Paul found repentance. He even said that God showed him grace for the purpose of demonstrating that God's grace is big enough to save anyone. If God could be gracious to Paul and grant him repentance, he could be gracious to anyone and grant them repentance is the idea. There's no sin that can't be repented of. Next, we need to repent of specific sins, going the word specific. Now listen to me here. I, I want to be real cl clear here. The repentance that, need, that is needed for salvation is of the sin of unbelief. Right? It doesn't require repenting of specific sins to actually be saved. Right? You're saying, I'm contradicting myself. Hear me out. In John 16, remember Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room. It's the night that he's, he's being actually being betrayed at this time. He's about to be arrested and killed. He knows that. And, and, and he's kind of giving his last will and testament to his disciples. He's promising them, hey, these blessings are going to happen. I know you're freaked out. I know you're scared. But it's through your bandage that I go away. Because if I don't go, I can't send the helper. And he's going to come. He's going to be with you. He's going to be in you. 
right? Uh, you're going to do greater things than, than I did through him, things like that. Well, in uh, chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, he says, And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Did you hear that? He says, he will convict the world of sin, because they did not believe in me. The sin that the Holy Spirit is going to convict people of is going to cause repentance of for salvation is the sin of unbelief in who Jesus is. He's not saying, hey, I'm going to convict you for being a drunkard, or I'm going to convict you for being a fornicator, or I'm going to convict you for, uh, you know, some other sin, you know, for stealing or something. No, it's for unbelief. You see, because someone could repent from stealing. Someone could repent from being a drunkard and still go to hell. Right? There's plenty of people that go through AA and give up alcohol, but they go to hell because they never had true repentance. But then why do I say that we need to repent of specific things? Well, it's because of this. Because when God's Spirit is truly working, regenerating someone, they repent of their unbelief in Jesus, but they also confess and repent of individual sins they were committing. It, it, it accompanies it. It's a sign that there is true repentance. And Mark 1, you remember John the Baptist, he's, he's preaching, and, and it says all Judea is coming out, and they're hearing him, and, and uh, it says this, you're coming, uh, and all the country of Judea was going out to hear him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Plural. It's not just a sin of unbelief. They're confessing other sins. They're confessing what they were doing wrong. You see, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and it illuminates sin in us. And it's our job to confess and repent of these sins when this happens. You know, when we get saved, we, we may not know that something's a sin. Right? But as soon as we do find out that it's a sin, we should confess it and repent of it. Forsake it. You know, it, it's kind of a, a cop-out just to confess, hey, I'm a sinner. You know, sin is generic sin. But Paul owned his sins, and he confessed them in a way that every Christian throughout 2,000 years of the church can read them. I'm a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. You see, I find this. I find that the, the sins that aren't confessed specifically are the sins that I don't really get victory over. But the sins that I confess specifically are the sins that I tend to get victory over. Remember, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Remember Peter? When uh, on that last night there, uh, Jesus, he comes and he's washing everybody's feet. And he comes to Peter and he says, no, not me, Lord. Never are you going to wash my feet. And what was Jesus' response? Unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. You see, what was so radical about that was, you know, they, they would bathe and they'd be clean, but you'd have to wash your feet every time you came into a house because they walked around on dirt roads. They wore sandals. So you'd pick up dirt everywhere you went. And that was a picture of all the places you've been, all the, the places you've gone where you shouldn't have gone, all the, the, the things in the world that you've gotten caught up in that you shouldn't have been doing. It, 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 it told a story of your sin. 
And to, to expose that is exposing your sinfulness. It was a vulnerability. And in the same way, God's calling us to confess our sins to one another so that we could be healed. Next point, repentance may look different for different sins. See, some sins need to be confessed to God. Some sins need to be confessed to man. But how do I know the difference? How do I know which sins I need to confess to man? Well, the, the, the sins that you commit against man, you need to confess to man. Remember Zacchaeus? Listen to his story. He, Jesus, entered Jericho when he was passing through, and there was a man called by the name Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable to because of the crowd. For he was a he was a man in stature, and so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. And he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, Zacchaeus here is going beyond confessing the sins that he he committed against man. He's making restitution. He's trying to make it right. And that's what true repentance does. True repentance is always going to try to make right the sins that you've committed. It's going to accept the, the justice, the judgment that is coming against it. You know, there's plenty of people that are in prison and have committed crimes that have had really long sentences. Some of them are on death row. And, and they're sitting in prison and they don't really have much time. And these ministries come in and preach the word and hand out Bibles and that. And, and people get saved in prison. A decent amount of people get saved. And there's some Christians that say, hey, God forgive them. We should forgive them too. We should let them go. But that's not what the truly repentant man says. The truly repentant man says, hey, I, I, I've I've been forgiven by God. I'm thankful for that. But I need to make my sins right. I, I need to make what I did wrong right. I, I, I need to return justice to the families that I've offended. And they go along with their judgment. But genuine repentance is always going to try to right the wrongs that you've committed. An application will be done. Repent and open your mouth and preach repentance. If you want to repent and preach. We need to repent, we need to open our mouth, and we need to preach repentance. See, if we haven't repented, all we need to do is that. <laughs> Today's the day for repentance. You never know when your last day is going to be. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are even guaranteed 30 minutes from now. That's why today is the day for salvation. Today is the day for repentance. Listen to this. George Whitfield meant mentioned in his journal that during his first voyage to Georgia, the ship's cook 
had a bad drinking problem. When the cup was removed, her aunt and other sons, he boasted that he would be wicked until the last two years of his life, and then he would reform. Whitfield added that within six hours of time, the cook made this boastful statement. He died of an illness related to his drinking. He never made it to that last two years. So if you've repented and are saved, you need to warn others to repent. You never know when this last chance to warn someone that they need to repent is going to come. I've told some of you guys that I've been training this guy in, in the gym, he's probably about 21 years old, um, helping him get in shape so that he could get married before his mom dies of cancer. Well, yesterday, I, I go to his house, and we drive around the corner to the gym, and, and we can't get there. The road's completely blocked. I'm like, this is weird. And so we go a different route, and we make it to the gym, and we're going in, and we're kind of trying to look around the corner, and we see, oh, man, looks like there might have been a car accident. Anyways, we work out maybe an hour and a half or so. We come out of the gym, and we walk to the car, and, and we're driving, and we're like, wow, there was a car accident. There's cops everywhere. All the streets blocked off. There's this pickup truck just completely destroyed on a flatbed. You could barely make out what it is. And we're looking at this, and we're like, man, this is quite the scene. And this guy, Addison, he goes, that truck looks familiar. That truck looks like Pete's truck, like my brother-in-law's truck. I don't know, man. I, I can't really have anything with this truck. It's so demolished. So we go back to his house, and he goes to his sister, and he says, hey, have you talked to Pete today? She's like, I've been trying to get a hold of him. I, I haven't been able to get a hold of him. And we're like, hey, we, we don't want to scare you. We don't want to. But this is what we saw. She starts making calls, and a few hours later, or a few minutes later, I, I hear wailing and screaming, Pete's dead. Pete's dead. I saw Pete a week ago. I had a conversation with Pete. And there was a few of us there. And during this conversation, it was like put up on a tee for me to tell him about repentance, to tell him what the gospel was. But I didn't. I didn't share it with him. It wasn't because I was afraid. It was just the conversation moved along, and I, I just didn't. I didn't take advantage of that opportunity. I have no reason to believe that Pete died knowing the Lord. The Lord might have met him. I don't know. But I have no reason to believe that. You know, it's not my fault Pete's not in heaven if he's not. Jesus knows how to save people. But I have to live with that. And I know this. I'm not going to miss another opportunity to tell people about the gospel, to tell people about repentance. And we need that urgency. Because you never know when that last time is going to be. You never know when that family member, when that friend, when that person comes into contact, God forbid that, that that happens to them. But you don't want to be in the situation that I'm in. If I would have just opened my mouth, if I would have just said something. Because we don't know. We don't know when our last day is. We don't know when our last day is. But God just thank you for those that have. Amen? God, I just... Uh, Thank you that you've granted us repentance. You've commissioned us to be ministers of reconciliation, and that includes repentance, Lord. So I pray you would fill us with your spirit, Lord, and you would just make us preach repentance, preach the gospel to everybody that's in our path, Lord. I pray that there isn't another Pete that we know. I pray that 
everybody around us knows that they need to repent because of our boldness, God. I thank you for tonight. I thank you for everybody here. I pray for those that aren't here. I pray that you be with them. I pray that you bring them back to us, Lord. I pray that you just do a work here in this ministry, in Devoted, that you do something new. You bring new people. You bring fresh love. You bring new activities, you know, new outreach and things like that. It looks like we're going to be able to go to Israel this summer. I'm excited about that. I pray that you make that happen. You provide everything we need. I pray I can send as many of us with me as possible. Lord, that we commit all these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.